Great. Um, thank you all for joining us today in these uncertain times. I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Michael Porter, and together with Alexis Morrison Howe, uh, we are uh, co-chairs of the Boston Bar Association State Tax Committee. Uh, we are very fortunate to have with us today Carl Frieden. Uh, Carl, is, uh, he, Carl is going to present today on current state tax, state tax trends, uh, including COVID-19 legislation and issues relating to the digital economy. Um, Carl, uh, Carl and I have been friends for an awful long time and, and, and we really appreciate uh, you making the time to speak with us today, uh, to present for us today, Carl. Uh, Carl is the Vice President and General Counsel of the Council on State Taxation, better known by its acronym COST. Carl's responsibility at the COST include managing its amicus program with numerous briefs submitted annually to the state Supreme Courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. He leads COST's advocacy program, program on state tax legislation and regulation relating to federal tax reform. Prior to joining COST, Carl was a partner with Ernst & Young, uh, and before that, tax partner with Arthur Anderson, which is uh, where I worked with Carl. And earlier in his career, he was the Deputy General Counsel of the Mass Department of Revenue, where I also worked with Carl. Uh, Carl is an adjunct professor of law I at the- escape, Mike. <laughs> Carl is an adjunct professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he co-teaches a course on the survey of state and local taxation. He's the author of numerous articles on state and local taxation and wrote the book, Cyber Taxation, the Taxation of E-Commerce, published back in 2000, with the first comprehensive book written on the taxation of the digital economy. And with that, Carl, I'm gonna turn it over to you uh, and, uh, and, and, and to the attendees. If you have questions uh, in, your, in your toolbar, you'll see a Q&A uh, icon. You can click on that icon to submit your questions and, and hopefully we'll, uh, Carl will be able to get to all of them. And with that, Carl, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, uh, thanks Mike, and thanks Alexis for inviting me. A pleasure to be here. These are certainly um, trying times for um, for our country, our world, actually, and but there are a lot of interesting, <laughs> for, good or, for better or worse, a lot of interesting tax issues going on. Uh, and I, I want to try to make this interactive, but if you could, just because, uh, you know, there's a lot of people on, if you can funnel questions through Mike and Alexis, and they'll try to interrupt me just to, we don't need to get through all these slides. Um, but what I was going to try to do, and I don't know if get, uh, I may not get to the, you know, a couple months ago, we were talking a lot about combined reporting, and uh, there's all sorts of stuff going on with the MTC, and you know a lot of other things going. But you know, clearly, COVID-19, the, the health and economic crisis, has sort of preempted all other tax issues, at least for the foreseeable future. And so, I wanted to talk about two aspects of that. The first is um, the, the stimulus-related things, particularly what's going on at the federal level. Uh, but also what are some of the state implications, for instance, of, you know, some of the more prominent ones of the CARES Act. Uh, you know, there's, I think, $3 trillion the federal government's already spent on uh, globally about $18 trillion in stimulus, which is getting close to 20% of the global GDP, and we're not even close to out of this yet. So the second part of what I want to talk about is how is this all going to get paid for, uh, you know, both loss revenues at all levels of government and also stimulus, particularly at the federal level. But that, that question is going to come not too, not too far down the road. And it's interesting from our perspective, because state and local tax and, you know, the careers of most of us has become a really big field. But there are still, you know, the U.S. is still very unique in having a subnational government that has about a third of all tax revenues between federal, state, and local. State and local has about a third of them. That's there's only a handful of countries in the world that that happens. And clearly what this crisis is going <clears> to <throat> accentuate is the fact that federalism is going to be under a lot of pressure because as we can and see already in this crisis, the federal government uh, can run huge deficits. Um, it's going to head probably for, you know, 10% of, of GDP deficit. Uh, usually it's more like 3% of GDP and they can spread out paying that back over years or decades. The states can't do that. They have to balance their budgets except for some, you know, perhaps borrowing for capital improvements. So the states are going to be in a much tighter spot in terms of in both in the short term and medium term. 
how to pay back all these lost revenues or have program cuts or some combination of those with rainy day funds. And also the issue of, is the federal government gonna bail out the states more? And a bailout's probably the wrong word, but help them out because, you know, they, they, you know again, they, they can't borrow as freely as the federal government can. And they're going to face, you know, an incredibly precipitously declining revenue. So, going to kind of break it up into those two parts. The first 15 or 20 minutes more on the COVID-19 related tax issues and business tax relief issues that have surfaced, and then talk a little bit about the OECD about consumption tax. You're, you know, all of a sudden starting to hear a lot more about <laughs> consumption taxes as perhaps a way out of this mess, particularly at the federal level. Uh, so I'll cover all those topics. Um, so in, in terms of the state-related issues, and, and we sort of said this already, is you know the, the problem that the federal government right now um, is in a unique position. Rarely do you get a bipartisan uh, accord on anything, and yet you've had almost unanimous votes to spend. You know the deficit hawks are gone, obviously, and to spend trillions of dollars to you know, help the country, help the healthcare industry, help state and local government to some extent and help workers and help businesses, you know, out of the situation we're in. States, it's going to be a much tougher thing. This comes right up with, you know, sort of conformity to the CARES Act, which I'll go into in a second on a couple of crucial tax provisions. The states are going to have to balance their budgets. You know, more than half the states have already passed their 2021 budgets. The ones that haven't, they're going to have to do it with, you know, sharply different revenue estimates. Uh, but states also are going to have to, to some extent, hopefully they will provide businesses and individuals, you know, with tax and other financial relief because what everyone's going to get from the federal government certainly may not be enough to deal with the onslaught of slowdowns and shutdowns. Um, and so the, the difference in the way the state has to deal with fiscal matters versus the federal government is really in, in, in sort of sharp relief in this crisis. Um, I'm not going to talk about all COVID-19 issues. There's a lot of issues, particularly for personal income tax partnerships, smaller businesses, and things like, you know, the PPP program. And if you get loan forgiveness, what's going to happen at the state level? Is that going to be income? There's all sorts of issues. I don't pretend to have either the expertise or the time to deal with them. But I am going to try to focus on the crucial ones that are happening, at least for larger or medium-sized corporations around the country. And just very briefly on this first one, because I want to spend some time on the CARES Act and the implications of that at the state level. But Massachusetts has, you know, <clears throat> pretty much been a leader on almost everything on this slide. I mean, the most important thing that happened initially was the states following the federal government <clears throat> and extending the deadline, not just for filing, but for payment on corporate and individual returns until July 15th. I mean, this is a just a, <clears throat> a timing issue, but, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a hugely expensive thing for both federal and state governments to do. And so Massachusetts and both other states have followed the federal lead on it. And also just in the last couple of weeks, Mass came out with some you know, very early pronouncements on this. There's all sorts of novel issues going on because of stay at work stuff. And so uh, a number of them are related to what happens, you know, and the fact pattern that you have, you know, a company in, you know, based in Connecticut or New Hampshire but the employees are living in Massachusetts. Do you have, does that all of a sudden, if they're, they're home instead of working at their workplace, they're living at their residence in Mass for three months or whatever, does that you know, give those Connecticut you know, and or New Hampshire businesses a nexus for corporate income tax purposes? Does that change the payroll factor numerator and put it in Massachusetts? Does it change withholding and so forth? And, you know, not many states have ruled on this, but Mass quickly came out and I think took very sensible positions on all of these and said, you know, basically, no, it's not going to, they're working at home, but they're, they're going to be considered for most purposes as, as if they were working in the state where their employer is. So some good progress there, but very uneven because most states haven't come out with rules on that. So that's a question mark. But I wanted to spend the next <clears throat> 10 minutes before I started going to some tax reform issues and how we're going to pay for all this, which is an incredibly intriguing question, which is going to involve all of our careers for the next two, three, four, five, ten years, I think, uh, fortunately or unfortunately. But the CARES Act was about two trillion dollars, and there's you know another four, five, six hundred billion in some of the other federal bills that passed. 
most of it was loans, grants, loan forgiveness, all sorts of different programs, uh, money that went to hospitals, money that went to state and local government, and so forth. But there were three key tax provisions. And so I just want to go over them quickly. Hopefully most of you are familiar with them. And then I'm going to just show you three maps which show where the states end up on these. And interestingly enough, all, all three are really rollbacks of taxpayer unfavorable provisions in the Tax Cuts and Job Act, the federal tax reform uh, in 2017, took effect mostly in 2018. And if you remember, there was, you know, you know, six trillion dollars over ten years of, of tax cuts federally, and four and a half trillion of re revenue raising. The biggest tax cuts were like, you know, at the corporate tax cut and so forth. The states, of course, don't follow the federal tax cuts, but many of them did follow some of the base broadeners' revenue raisers. So many, not all, are are conforming to some of these provisions that are, are now being rolled back, at least for a two to three year period federally. So that raises a question of whether the states are conforming or not, or what their independent provisions are. And the, the three main ones are, and you know, we've talked about um, the Tax Cuts and Job Act and the most important things at the state level we've been talking about for the last two years have been 163J, you know, interest expense limitations, and guilty, uh, and repatriated income, depreciation, some of those. I mean, several of those are in play here, but all of a sudden NOLs, not surprisingly, have become much more important. So what happened with 163J? Well, 163J, obviously in the TCJA, really for the first time, Congress limited interest deductions to 30% of adjusted taxable income. They're now liberalizing that because obviously borrowing, if you look at the last recession, borrowing went from corporate borrowing, uh, you know, basically, uh, tripled uh, during the recession, losses tripled as well. And, you know, if you look at corporate borrowing, excuse me, corporate borrowing doubled. I mean, corporate borrowing actually over the last uh, 20 years has gone from like 4 trillion to 10 trillion, even before COVID-19. And most of that was around the time of the recession and afterwards, partly for companies to recover, partly because interest rates were so low. So interest rate deductions as companies borrow more in the next coming months becomes very important. So federal government did two things. One, relax the cap from 30% to 50% of, you know, how much interest can be deducted against adjusted taxable income. And then even as importantly, since so many companies are going to have losses or very little income in 2020, they said that a company can use your 2019 adjusted taxable income, which is likely to be much harder for purposes of the 163J calculation uh, in 2020. Net operating losses, you know, historically the federal government and some states, but not most states, have allowed carrybacks and carry forwards. So it was only with the TCGA again to try to um, bring in some revenue to offset the large corporate tax cuts at the federal level. Uh, the federal government stopped doing allowing carrybacks they allowed unlimited carry forwards and they put an 80 percent cap on how much nol you could carry forward into any given year those have been immediately relaxed going backwards to 2019 2020 and they're going to allow five-year carrybacks which again for companies who made a lot of income in 2019 or 2018 or 2017 and have huge losses in 20 or 21 they're going to be able to you know get cash flow advantage with with refunds and so forth. And then finally, I'm not gonna spend much time on it, but for retailers um, and for restaurants and some others that do a lot of leasehold improvements, there was what most people thought was a mistake uh, in the TCJA where they labeled that type of property, qualified improvement property as 39 year property, which made it so it wasn't subject to the 100% bonus depreciation at the federal level and in some states so that's been fixed permanently. The other two changes are just two or three year adjustments. Again, the important thing here is that these are not tax cuts. These are not permanent other than the, the depreciation schedule, but they are timing differences and they're really important timing differences. And the federal government certainly saw this as, you know, with the amount of corporate borrowing that's gonna go on and the 
number of companies that are likely to lose money. I think during the last recession, 45% of the companies had NOLs, um, may even be higher this time. They thought that companies needed flexibility. So what happened at the state level? Um, <clears throat> and you can look at these maps later. These were also in an article that I, I wrote with a colleague for state tax notes last week, but 163J, um, it's, it's, it's kind of all over the map, but two thirds of the states did conform to 163AJ. The others uh, that are in pink never conformed or were decoupled from 163J. So, you know, as of 2018, 2019, you had two thirds of the states um, that were imposing this 30% restriction on conformity or slightly more than half of those two thirds. And so those like Massachusetts are following the federal rule. One of the concerns we have or business has is that the states in green, there's 13 of them. And actually New York is a rolling conformity state and they went backwards on this. They're the only state that's actually done anything that I'm aware of. They still have the TCGA rule so that even though, you know, the other two thirds of the states are either, either have no limitation on interest um, and or uh, are following the more generous short-term federal limitation of 50%. These states in green have not yet conformed. And if they don't conform, they're gonna have a much more restrictive uh, rule on debt than the, the rest of the states. Carrybacks is much more complicated. Uh, the green states here, there's five of them have NOL carrybacks of differing numbers of years. Uh, the states in uh, yellow, have carrybacks, but they cap the carrybacks. And then the states uh, in um, red, there's a few states that would have carrybacks because they conform to the federal code, but they do so on a static basis. So until they change their effective date, they don't. But most states, the states in blue, have decoupled like most states did from 100% or even 50% bonus depreciation. Most states because it cost them money, haven't conformed to the carryback rules. So this is a very important map. It may change, you know, some states may allow carrybacks, at least in part. Some that allow carrybacks may decide it's too expensive, but we're gonna not only for compliance purposes have major differences between different states and the federal government, but this is gonna be a really big issue because we don't know how prolonged the, the economic crisis is here, but it's very uncertain in the number of industries that are facing uh, setbacks and you know, some of them, many of them devastating uh, are gonna be in lost positions. And even though this is a timing difference, you know, when they need the cash flow or liquidity is now or in the next couple of years, which is why carrybacks are gonna be so important uh, at the federal level and also for states that are, you know, feel like they can afford to do it. And then finally, I'm on 60, yeah, it's another question. Yeah, Carla Selectos, just wanted to, um, you know, ask a question because I, I know some people um, have gotten confused by this, uh, what, the interaction and the nuance, the fact that the changes in the CARES Act, a lot of them are, you know, retroactive back to earlier tax years, right? Like uh, the 163J changes can affect 2019. And so for even a state that, you know, they might, adopt the IRC in effect as of 1231 2019 that these new changes won't be um, effective in a fixed date conformity state even if their conformity date is, is, is later than these retroactive changes. Can you um, just kind of explain that nuance to everybody because I know some people are, are, are kind of confused. Sure. <clears throat> yeah. Why don't I just do it um, for 163J and then LOLs. I mean 163J is more straightforward you know, on this map, the states that are in pink, you know, no limitations so that they don't worry about it. But for the states in blue, the, the rolling conformity states, they pick up the changes and those changes affect 2019 and 2020. So they're, they're gonna, you know, get the benefit of the relaxed rules in both years and, and also get to use the 2019 adjusted taxable income. The states in green, if they simply change their effective dates to the date after the CARES Act, let's say, you know, April 1st, 2020, then they'll be the same as the states in blue. But if they don't, they're gonna 
you know, not have the generous rule on using, you know, 2019 income and they're going to be stuck with 30%. And, you know, for companies that are losing money, it just means it's going to be carried forward for, you know, a much longer period of time. The NOL one is more complicated because there's really a couple issues here. There's the 80% cap and we've sort of, there's eight or 10 states that still have the 80% cap. Um, but the big issue is the carrybacks. And so federally, that carryback provision goes back five years. So anybody who had losses in 2019, 2020, 2021, those years, they're gonna be able to, or maybe, excuse me, I may not apply to 2021, but they're gonna be able to carry back their losses five years, which obviously is gonna put them, for many of them, in a refund position. Those that are in uh, blue, even if they updated their code and some of them have rolling conformity like mass, doesn't matter because they have state specific statutes that prevent them from having carrybacks. So it's really a, a slightly simpler issue, in some sense, than the interest because only three states in red, they're the only ones where if they updated the code, they would pick up the carryback. Everybody else has their own either limitations so they don't have carryback rules or um, they, they have more limited ones like Montana and Idaho and so forth. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, thanks. Thanks. And then the same thing here. I mean, most states are decoupled. Two thirds of the states are decoupled from 168K completely. But there is a sleeper issue here, which is if they're decoupled from 168K, but they're coupled to the macros rules, then there is an issue with if they are fixed date conformity states, they need to change the date so that that property goes from 39 years to 15 years. Still wouldn't make it subject to bonus depreciation, but it it would be a lot faster and more keeping with the old rule. So a lot going on there. And uh, the, the, the big, you know, I think the big takeaway there is that the, it's just interesting, the, even though these are all timing differences, because two of them have to do with losses and interest deductions, which are going to be so important during this crisis. The federal rule is going to be much more generous than, you know, a lot of the states uh, about two-thirds of the states on 163J are following the federal rule or have something more generous because they're not coupled at all to 163J. It's the opposite on the NOL rule. You know, two-thirds of the states are not at this point following the federal rule. Unclear if they will or not. It's a lot more expensive for states to conform to carrybacks than it is to the 163J changes, just, you know, given the enormity of the dollars involved. So, Moving on, I want to talk for the next, you know, 20, 20 minutes or so, and then we'll, we'll throw it open for questions, and hopefully some questions are accumulating, or I can keep talking, but that, that's sort of from the, you know, the, the states, you know, if you go back to what I said here before, I mean, other than New York sort of saying we're not going to conform on 163J, they went from a, from a rolling conformity state to a state that's static, you know, most of the states haven't done anything on this, unlike filing deadlines and stuff, which was a quick quick fix, an important one, but most of the states move quickly. They haven't done anything if they're, if they're, you know, fixed state conformity states or if they were out of sync with the code to begin with. I can't think of a single state other than New York that's done anything with 163J or with NOL carrybacks yet. Um, that remains to be seen in, in different legislative sessions, but clearly what states are going to have to deal with is in the short term, how do you balance your budgets, which may mean cuts, hopefully it'll mean a lot more money from the federal government, rainy day funds, and potentially some tax increases, but tax increases are obviously really hard to do in a recession. So what I wanted to try to do is look ahead 12, 24 months, because you know it's going to happen sooner rather than later, and hopefully a lot sooner if we get a vaccine or you know some, some ray of hope uh, in, in terms of a, a cure for for COVID-19, but it's not that hard to see, you know, some of the issues and it'll depend a lot on, you know, what happens with Congress and which party wins the presidency and who's governors and so forth. There's a lot of blue state, red state, uh, blue country, red country differences here, but it's pretty clear, you know, that if you're gonna have to plug some major holes, both at the federal and the state level, what are some of the ideas circulating around? And so, I'm just going to mention a few and then I'm just going to focus on a couple because we don't have time to talk about it all. And you could call this tax reform, which it may be, or, you know, tax increases to, to pay back, 
you know, the fiscal stimulus to pay back lost revenues if the states or localities are suffering uh, mightily now. But, you know, there's already lots of discussion, and it was even before the crisis on <clears throat> windfall profit taxes, wealth taxes, more progressive income taxes, like in Massachusetts with the Constitutional Initiative, gross receipts taxes. Oregon just had one. Three or four other states have them. They continue to be popular and not with us, but <laughs> in some circles, carbon taxes are kind of hanging in the background there. Uh, mark to market, you know, one of the democratic proposals like to be a you know backdoor form of a wealth tax with mark to market on corporate securities, um, you know, taxing them before the gain is realized, at least for people above a certain income level. So all of these are, you know, potentially um, proposals, both at the federal and state level that are likely to surface, but, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, given limited time, I, I want to focus in on a few. One is digital service taxes and sort of the backdrop of them, which is really the pillar one and pillar two OECD, OECD project, which has not been postponed yet. It's one of the biggest potential changes in decades for international tax, much, much bigger and more likely to happen. I think a lot of people think than the BEPS-1 project, which finished in 2015. Um, and the digital services tax is sort of competing with that almost for shelf space and, you know, will happen more or less depending on whether the pillar one and pillar two happen. So I want to talk about not just what's in them, but also what impact it may have on state taxation. <clears throat> so I'm going to spend uh, 10 or 15 minutes on that. And then I want to spend about five minutes on consumption taxes because the other issue that looms so large here, it's been in the background for a long time, is that, you know, the U.S., it's pretty much the only major nation in the world that doesn't have a national consumption tax. And we also have a consumption tax, <clears throat> our sales and use tax at the state level that brings in about half or less money as a percentage of overall tax revenues um, than consumption taxes do in Europe and Asia and elsewhere. And that's going to be a big problem as we try to, you know, raise revenue at the federal level, the state levels, as we're trying to get out of this mess. And if we have to rely too much on income taxes and property taxes, which may be very depleted for a while, it's going to be a problem if we don't have a big consumption tax. And so it's been recognized as a problem in the U.S. for a long time. But, you know, my view certainly is it's going to become even a bigger problem in the next 24 months. So in terms of digital services taxes, <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I mean, this is one of these issues that makes our profession fun or not, depending upon <laughs> where you sit, whether you have to pay for this or you get to, you know, write regulations for it or you get to, uh, you know, litigate on this. But, you know, the, the digital service tax basically didn't exist 36 months ago. I mean, this is a brand new thing, which as you can see here, France is the most famous, but a bunch of other countries have either uh, or are in the wings. And the entire European Union is certainly considering doing a digital services tax if the OECD Pillar 1 in particular doesn't go through. And then in the US, we've had five or six states already that have um, introduced them in Maryland. We're all waiting. Maryland, it passed in Maryland. The governor's probably going to, Republican governor, probably going to veto it. Not 100% sure, but probably not clear yet one way or the other whether it will, whether their veto will be overridden. Um, and we should know all this in the next few weeks, but there's already one of these in the U.S. And so just want to spend a minute on this slide comparing sort of Maryland and in, in France. And, you know, one of the curious things here is that the reason uh, why digital service taxes surfaced, the rationale for them in other countries really doesn't apply at the state and local level, at least I would say. And, and the, the reason they are happening in France and Europe and elsewhere is because for income tax purposes, they're bound by treaties, as is the U.S. federal government. Uh, so they have permanent permanent establishment, not, not for VAT, because VAT doesn't have any 
physical presence rule. But on the income tax side, most nations like France still have to have a permanent establishment to be able to tax. And this is all about taxing inbound companies, these taxes. So one, they can't tax them unless there's a physical presence. So to get the, you know, the big digital companies, US-based mostly, that are advertising or selling into Europe, they can't necessarily do it. Um, and two, basically based on the international tax regime, which is more of a territorial regime with lots of transfer pricing for cross-border transactions, they don't use market sourcing very much, a little bit in transfer pricing, but not that much. So that's their problem. That's why they're turning to the digital services tax because one, they can focus on companies they perceive to be very profitable and aren't paying their fair share. Two, there's no physical presence. It's not an income tax, arguably subject to the treaties. It's more of a gross receipts tax. And three, they can use market sourcing. So all of that applies, which is why this is such a popular idea abroad. You know, arguably in Maryland and in most states that other than, you know, public law 86272, which really doesn't come into play much here for these companies, they're not bound by physical presence rules for corporate income tax purposes. And we have market sourcing far more, 100% or 75% or at least 50% single sales factor, double weighted sales, way more than you'll see Europe is thinking about in their pillar one. We're way beyond that. So why Maryland and New York and all the others are, are thinking about digital service taxes. I mean, I think there's understandable political reasons and going after companies that even in this crisis are perceived as, and many of them are doing quite well, but there certainly is not the same rationale as there is abroad. The issue abroad in France has put theirs on hold because the U.S. government is going crazy. I mean, I think, and, and you can see that you know, the Maryland one is more limited. It's more on digital advertising. The French one is on advertising. It's on digital marketplaces. It's on transmission of data. It's, it's quite a bit broader than the Maryland one, although it applies to companies that are 750 million euros, which is about, you know, $850 million. So it's really only going after about 30 companies at this point, the French one, you know, these numbers can change, but and I think 90% of those 30 companies are in Silicon Valley or in the US. So they're really going after US multinationals, not so much their own. And they're, you know, they're basically what France said, and, you know, because Trump and the US government uh, went crazy saying this is, you know, we're going to come after you and double the price of French wine and we have all sorts of tariffs. And they, they got France and some of the other countries to back off temporarily, but the backing off is only subject to whether pillar one in particular happens. And so what's pillar one and two and why should we care about it? And you know, the, keep in mind the digital services taxes are sitting there. They're gonna spread like crazy. They may even spread like crazy anyway, but one of the reasons the OECD feels that pillar one and pillar two, even though it's a huge transformation of global taxes, their position is at a recent meeting that's post-COVID-19 meeting, it's even important, more important now than it was before. And part of the reason is to stave off universe, universe, unilateral taxes like digital service taxes and other ones that would be country by country and you know lead to potential double taxation and lead to sort of international chaos. So, you know, in my mind, this will probably be pushed out. I don't think they'll get pillar one and pillar two done excuse me, in, in 2020, but I think most people think it's it's likely to happen. And so what is it and what, why do we care? And I'm just going to give you the 30,000 foot level because some of you have studied this, you know, some of you haven't. Um, <clears throat> pillar one, and there, there's more complication in the, this, but this is really the proposal that's being done and this is all within a corporate income tax, right? So this is not a digital service tax, but this is what they hope will supplant the need for digital service tax. And what they are saying is that amount A, which is the critical part of digital, the critical part of pillar one, what they're saying is, and it's not just the OECD, the OECD has 36 member nations, but a hundred other countries, including China and all sorts of others that make up 90% of the world's GDP they're all looking at this, whether they can reach consensus or near consensus. 
not clear. And keep in mind, the OECD is a little bit like a, uh, it's a little bit like the MTC with Superman power and Spider Woman, Spider Man powers. I mean, they they don't have legislative power, but they have huge persuasive power in terms of suggesting model acts. So what they're saying is, okay, let's change the corporate income tax uh, internationally, not completely, but they're going to say for certain companies, and so they're only saying for automated digital services, those are sort of the companies that would be under digital services tax, and for B2C companies, consumer-facing companies, so not for B2B and all companies, and they're exempting banks and all sorts of others, but for market-facing companies, if they sell into, say, the European Union, we're going to ignore permanent establishment rules, so they'll have to change their treaties, and we're going to tax them not on all their profits, but only on sort of their non-routine profits, sort of above a certain level, and we're going to source it based on the market. So this is their first big dabbling with sort of an apportionment type of a what they're talking about almost seems like a joke to us in the state tax world. I mean, they're only talking about using economic nexus just for a certain part of the economy and only like 20% market sourcing, you know, not 80% or 100% and only on some of the profits. But internationally, this is a really big deal to supplant permanent establishment issues in part, and to move towards sort of a, a, an apportionment-like concept. This would be a very big deal. All sorts of other issues there. Do you just do this for big companies? They want it to still coexist with arm's length principles, uh, only on certain level of profits, but almost all these principles can be changed as they developed it and they haven't made a final decision. It's extremely important state level, since they're basically stealing most of this or borrowing most of this from our concepts, right? Whether it has feedback mechanism for the states, for instance, this is really starting to look a little bit about like you did back in the 50s or 60s, whether it would get states to, you know, or the Supreme Court eventually to, to reconsider whether 100% market sourcing single sales factor is either constitutional or the right way to go and shift back a little bit towards three factor we don't know, but the biggest impact of this is if it doesn't happen, then digital services taxes will explode along with some other types of taxes, which then may affect whether the states adopt them. Quickly moving on to pillar two. Pillar two, pillar one is really all about, best way to think about it is, it's all about inbounds. It's getting inbound companies that either have no physical presence, or if you get into their amount Bs and amount Cs, it's really ones that have physical presence, but usually only through a distribution company, changing how much the consumer companies, the market countries can tax the distribution function and changing the uh, arm's length pricing rules. Um, pillar two is pretty simple for us to understand too. It's really stealing from the TCJA. I mean, it's really taking two major provisions, the income inclusion one, which looks a lot like guilty, sort of a global minimum tax, and the base eroding one, which looks a lot like beat, and saying, well, if it's good enough for the Americans, it's good enough for us. And keep in mind that the TCJA occurred after the BEPS-1. BEPS-1 produced its 2,000 pages of recommendations, many of which were implemented around the world, many of which weren't. But you know, there's 2,000 pages, 15 different platforms of, of, of issues. And many of these were implemented around the world, but you know, it was kind of like buyer's remorse after the, T after the US Congress came out with you know, the TCGA, not, not all of it. You know, a lot of the countries already had much lower corporate income tax rates, which the TCGA was trying to match, but at least this part of it, guilty and beat, they were like, okay, well, if that's a good enough issue for US government, the leading country in the world to do, then, then we should think about it. And, there are a couple of really big differences. They're really not talking about guilty as defined. They're not talking about that Q by provision where you take your foreign incomes and cut them in half and multiple or before you do that, you take 10% of the tangible base, which is Q by and deduct that from your foreign earnings. They're talking more about maybe a minimum tax rate, which is kind of where the federal government ended up trying to tax everything abroad that wasn't taxed or that was taxed below 13.125%. So they're looking at that. They may not do it on a 
aggregate basis. They may do it country by country, still wildly being debated. But anyway, it's going to raise a lot of issues. And this one gets more interesting for the states because the states, as many of you know, almost none of them um, adopted BEAT because it was an outside provision and they didn't have to deal with conformity towards it. And about 40, 45 percent of the states uh, adopted you know, anywhere from taxing 15 to 50 percent of guilty, but not most, over 80 percent of the states population-wise, including mass, are only taxing either no guilty or 5 percent of guilty. So it does raise the question, if this does happen internationally over the next two, three, four years, and there's a lot more foreign minimum taxes, and again, this is more on outbound companies. The other one was more on inbound. The base eroding payment is, is, is more on inbounds, but the income inclusion rule, the global minimum tax is more on taxing your own companies. So France taxing its own multinationals with earnings abroad, but it raises questions. It probably will for the states. Mass already has a healthy discussion still going on. Should we change our rule on, on, on uh, guilty and so forth and raises the question of whether the states should do it. And so don't have really a lot of time to go into that, but I just wanted to make a few comments on, you know, state level, um, taxes on global earnings and so forth, because this has been a debate for decades in the U.S. with some states minority taxing, as you can see here, tax havens. Uh, some states, not on here, but about 15 or 16 taxed, well, actually, you know, a little bit on here, but there, there were 15 or 16 states that taxed foreign dividends in the past or more than a minor share of them, like mass tax, 5%, but a lot of states taxed more than them. Most of those states are the same ones who ended up taxing a portion of guilty. They just switched over from foreign dividends to guilty. There was 12 states at one point that had worldwide combined reporting mandatory. I think there's eight or 10 now that have it elective. Um, but these were again sort of, and this gets into sort of the, the, the two unique things I wanted to finish, you know, in terms of this discussion is there, there's two very unique things about the U.S federalist system compared to most countries in the world. One is that we have such a robust subnational tax. And you can see here on the map, there's only, if you take the 48 countries uh, along with the US that make up 90% of the world's production, only eight of them actually have subnational corporate income taxes. Probably only that many have subnational sales or use taxes too, or even fewer, but there's only eight of them. And you know, we did a study with PwC last year and it looked at them of those eight, only one of the eight actually taxes any foreign source income. So there's only one country, Korea, with subnational government, and they do it at a much lower rate than we do, that's doing anything like the states are doing with guilty or foreign dividends. So it doesn't mean the states should or shouldn't do it. That's a policy question for all, for all of us. I mean, obviously our organization thinks they shouldn't, but um, it does point out how unique U.S. is in this regard. And so I think the important takeaways from, from uh, this sort of far away issue, or at least seems far away, you know, pillar one and pillar two, is that pillar one is really important because if it doesn't happen, digital services taxes and a lot of other more unilateral measures are likely to happen, which are probably going to be sort of harmful for the world economy, but they'll just take place if a consensus doesn't build up. Pillar one is not that interesting from the state point of view because we already do it times 10. Pillar two is more interesting because if more countries tax foreign source income or have sort of big add back rules and so forth, then it, it will probably cause states to take another look at this. Um, the, the last two slides I have here, and then Mike and Alexis, I'm leaving the last 10 or 15 minutes for questions, but this slide is really important. I, I mentioned this in the beginning, but I mean, given the fiscal mess we're in, state taxation, state budgets, they never were very independent, but they're gonna be even more interdependent on what the federal government does over the next few years. So if you look at the final bullet there, um, you know, before the COVID-19 crisis, federal AIDS grants for Medicaid, for education, for transportation, so forth, made up most recent fiscal year, we have numbers on, 31% of state budgets and 23% overall of state and local budgets. Um, that's going to get even worse now, or at least, you know, the bailout money is going to in the short term increase those percentages significantly because 
I don't think state and local governments are going to make it unless they get a, a huge revenue package, a second one from the federal government in the hundreds of billions of dollars. But it does still raise the question, states are much more hampered in terms of how they can spread debt over the years or running deficits in the federal government can. And the other thing that is going to affect this is the federal government is going to be in the worst debt. You know, federal debt was already like 21 billion before this, excuse me, 21 trillion before this crisis occurred. It's now going to go up to levels we haven't seen since the depression, coming out of the depression in World War II, the largest federal debt on record in the last 75 years. So is the federal government going to be able to finance that? How are they going to finance it? And are they going to over time cut back on some of the money they give to the states, which is going to put pressure on the states? <clears throat> so the last slide <clears throat> I want to share, <clears throat> this one is a, <clears throat> a summation of a, another study that our organization is doing that'll be out in another month or two is <clears throat> Um, excuse me. <clears throat> For those of you who uh, <clears throat> know me, there's a topic dear to my heart, which is, you know, consumption taxes are not like in a lot of different corners. They're clearly regressive. Uh, and if you expand them, you got to deal with that issue, which is an even more important issue with all the, you know, income equality issues going on now than it was probably 10 or 15 years ago, <clears throat> excuse me. But we're in a situation here where we only have a subnational consumption tax, at least general tax. There's some excises at the federal level, but our only big consumption tax is the state and local sales tax. <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> hanging in there. And <clears throat> The, the stat's not here, but it brings in, together with the other consumption taxes at all levels, <clears throat> only about 17% of all federal, state, and local taxes in the U.S. are consumption taxes. That number is 33% abroad. And the reason this is so important is that consumption taxes, <clears throat> when income taxes are going to be hard to raise, except for on the very wealthy, perhaps, in the next few years, as the economy's not doing so well, consumption taxes are going to be very important. And if you look at it, not only do we raise less money, but we have a much less effective consumption tax based on traditional criteria of a consumption tax <clears throat> than certainly the European Union and Canada. <clears throat> so if you look at, is it centralized versus decentralized? You know, we've got 46 states, including DC, and 10,000 jurisdictions. Most of them are tax jurisdictions, but still complexity. European Union and Canada have zero, zero local tax on consumption. They have complete national, or in the case of Europe, European-wide harmonized taxes. They tax the exact same thing, except for about 5% <clears throat> within all countries in the EU and within all of Canada with a minor amount of uh, retail sales taxes. We have the streamlined sales tax project, which is very important, but it harmonizes things like definitions and exemption certificates. It doesn't harmonize the base. And then finally, they don't tax business inputs unless the output is exempt. We tax all sorts of business inputs, leading to all sorts of pyramiding and 42% of the sales tax <coughs> coming from business. So I will stop <clears throat> with this slide. There's no easy fix. Hopefully we'll fix this with much broader based sales taxes at the state level on household consumption and less on business consumption. Whether the rate changes or not, that's a political decision. Whether we end up with a national consumption tax, <clears throat> who knows? Still very unlikely, but certainly more possible than it was three months ago. But I think these two big international trends, what they're going to do with their global income taxes through the OECD and what we do to compensate or not from the fact that <clears throat> we don't really have a viable, vibrant, broad-based consumption tax in the U.S. compared to the rest of the world 
will, I think, determine a lot as we get out of the second stage of the COVID-19 crisis, which is not just the stimulus, but what tax reform will balance all our budgets and pay for all the stimulus. So why don't I stop there? Um, I left a couple slides at the end about all sorts of important topics that happened the first three months of the year that will continue to happen, but yeah, I mean, to talk about them. Go ahead. Um, Carl, I'd love to um, just ask a question on um, what you were talking about earlier <laughs> in the CARES Act and 163J. And, you know, as you were explaining, there are those uh, fixed conformity date states that are going to be at 30% um, unless they, you know, opt into the 50% or um, the, the states that may be considering opting out and, and going back to the 30%, like what New York did um, recently. And I guess what I'd love to know is your thoughts about, you know, what you see as, as a trend in this, in this area as we see, you know, over the summer, um, you, you know, are you expecting many states to, to couple on to the 50%? Um, and are you aware, you know, is there any um, lobbying efforts? I know there was a lot of lobbying efforts around decoupling entirely um, from 163J, but is there also going to be, you know, moves to push states to, to, to conform to the 50% level? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> I would say there's going to be a lot of effort state by state because, you know, states either are going to come back for special sessions or, you know, the third half of the states are still in their budget sessions like Mass. I mean, Mass has already conformed on this one, so it's not in play. Uh, but the rest of New England <laughs> and New York and New Jersey are, are states of concern. I, I think this is going to be pushed. If I had to guess, states are more constrained, as I said, than the federal government because of the way they balance budgets. And they're you know, taking a severe beating right now in their revenues. I think that I, I hold out more hope for change on this to either, you know, to conform to what the federal government did if the state's in green on this map. Than they do on than I do on NOL carry forwards and I mean excuse me carrybacks. The reason being this is not as expensive. You know to conform on carrybacks is a much more expensive proposition for a state that doesn't do it. This is a much more recent change, right? States only implemented this rule two years ago. This was a change that was a revenue raiser. Like in all these green states, they never gave the tax cuts the federal government did that more than offset the tax increase of 163J. So for them to sit there and never have given the tax cuts and to be you know, in the minority of jurisdictions, federal and state, that are imposing significant restrictions on debt at a time when companies really need to borrow more, I think there'll be a fairly persuasive argument to get some of these states to change, you know, whether they will or not, Alexis, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think if you turn to the next one, much more difficult here. I do think there may be some progress to maybe mimic some of the states that are in yellow that it's not as expensive to allow a carry back to give some flexibility on losses, you know, because losses don't do you any good if you have to carry them forward 20 years if you're not going to get any income for two or three or four years. So if you have carry backs, but like these states in yellow, you cap them at a million or five million or 10 million or whatever, that's probably more possible than just putting in a carry back like the federal government so yeah it's, it's certainly i do um deloitte's state tax reform model <laughs> um that we use for for our clients and for compliance and you know now you have to do separate you know you always have to do separate and combine and now i have to do uh state with 30 percent state with 50 percent state allowing the ati election state not allowing the ati election um, so it's, yeah. it's definitely a lot and more I mean, state, than there was. To give you an example on that one, so it will be a state-by-state state issue. And so like on, on, you know, the state of Minnesota, for instance, which is one of these green ones, they've already done revenue estimates on some of this. So I think they said it would cost them $53 million to conform to the new federal rule temporarily on 163J. So a, a fair amount of money, but nothing like what an NOL carryback would cost them. So... Right. Um, I think it's, you know, something that's going to be strongly pushed because I, I think, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do. You could say, well, on depreciation and carrybacks, 
states really haven't conformed with the federal government for a long time. On this one, they were lockstep with the federal government before 2018. And for the last two years, it's only now that they're out of sync and just, you know, because of a circumstance of static conformity, it's really not the right or fair result. Correct. Hey, Carl, uh, back on consumption taxes, um, are, are you, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I'm getting a little notice, my internet's a little tricky. Um, uh, Carl, is there, are you aware, uh, I would agree that the likelihood of a consumption tax or a value-added sort of tax being enacted anytime in the near term is, is, is low. But on the other hand, the environment is such that it, it does invite it. Uh, are you aware of any legislative proposals, either in the Congress or the Senate? To, uh, is, there any, is there anything brewing or has there been anything brewing to put a consumption tax in place on the federal side? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, the last time it came up, the Senate went just, you know, like 10 to 1 or 11 to 1 against it. I mean, it's, you know, it's the third rail of taxation. It's like criticizing or cutting Social Security, right? It's unlikely to happen, will probably never happen. But if you do look at the federal, you know, even before this, you know, and there's lots of studies, they come out every, you know, you know, Obama's administration considered one, the Nixon administration considered one. It just doesn't go anywhere. But if you look at the trend line of federal debt with the aging of the population before this, and then you look at what's happening with the federal deficit, you know, they're going to have to think about it. You know, they probably still won't do it. I'm certainly not advocating at this point. If it does happen, given our federal system, it would probably look like Canada. I mean, Canada did this 30 years ago, smaller country, obviously, but they had a retail sales tax across all the provinces. They couldn't get rid of that. They didn't want to get rid of that. And so they put in a, a national VAT called a GST on top of it, and then they slowly, with incentives, induce the provinces to tie to the federal base and just get half or more of the rate, you know, of, of the money. And that's essentially what the major provinces did. A couple minor didn't. So, if we did it, it would never be just a federal tax. It would never happen. The states would never go for it. But it is possible to have both, and give incentives to harmonize the base. You know, if I had a bet on it, still unlikely to happen during your and my career, but you know, I, it's going to have to come up as a policy debate because the alternative to raise all this money from income taxes and property taxes and the state sales tax, very difficult to do. Right. Hey, do, you, do you expect to see base broad, you know, so if, there's, if, the, if a consumption tax isn't in the near term, uh, do you expect to see base broadening at the sales tax level? In other words, you know. Yeah, I mean, at the state level, you know, you and I lived through the sales tax on services, as did a few other people on this call. Right. And by the way, you, you cut off now. You're right. But, you know, eight or nine states have tried to do what really the rest of the world does, right? The rest of the world taxes most services, professional services. Nobody taxes education or health care. Most of them have a base much larger than ours, but they don't tax business inputs or they don't tax them. If the output is subject to tax, our problem is we're, we're stuck. You know, the states want to expand the base, but most of the money or a lot of the money is in business services. So every time they try to expand the base to services without exempting business services, business goes crazy because that's even worse than the corporate income tax for them because they're paying so much of the sales tax already. So we're still stuck with that. So I, you know, I do think we'll get incremental changes in the sales tax. I think the base will continue to be broadened on household services. The other problem we have is it's a lot harder to add them one by one, yoga services and haircuts, and, you know, lawyers, because those, you know, when, when they did it in Nevada, it's not that Nevada's superior. It's just when they broaden the base, they do everything at once and take the political hit all at once. It's much harder to do incrementally, but that's our system, so. Well, very good. I don't see any more questions from the audience. We are right at 101, so we're perfectly on time. Well done, Carl, very good. Um, well, I wanna thank uh, uh, Carl. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. It was a very enlightening topic. 
And I also want to thank uh, Jenna Kim and Dan Tillman from the BDA for organizing this for us. And I want to thank uh, all the attendees who showed up. This was our most well attended uh, brown bag lunch of the entire year. So uh, thanks everyone for taking the time to join. We appreciate it. Uh, you all have the slides and the materials. If not, uh, just shoot an email off to the BBA and they can uh, certainly send them along. Uh, so Carl, thanks very much. Alexis, thank you very much. And thanks to all the attendees and I hope you all uh, have a great day and stay safe. Take yeah, care. Thanks everybody. Hope you enjoyed your lunch. <laughs> thank you all. Thanks. 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 Take care.